and I did have clients who were pleading to five years to serve sometimes for possession of a small amount of crack. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. I'm with Dan Schubert and Leanne Kane today. Uh, both work with the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy, right? Dan is the directing attorney and Leanne, social worker? Yes. Okay, great. Um, so just give us some background on that department and what it's about and what you all do individually. Sure. The Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy is um, a government agency in Kentucky to uh, – to build a framework and a structure for getting appointed counsel to uh, indigent defendants across the state. Um, so our agency has uh, different branches. We have a trial branch, we have an appellate branch, and um, well, within the appellate branch is the and a kind of post-conviction branch. Um, we have 36 trial offices that cover 120 counties in Kentucky. So some of those trial offices are, are covering different counties. The trial office that I supervise is the Covington um, office, and we're responsible for Kenton County. Um, we handle any case in Kenton County where the person has the right to counsel. And basically, you have the right to counsel in any case in which you are, um, there's a possibility of incarceration. Uh, so you're talking about uh, misdemeanors and felonies. Uh, that also extends to things that I call kind of quasi-criminal, like uh, civil contempt hearings. Uh, so, for instance, when a person has been civilly ordered to pay their child support, if they fail to pay their child support or they fail to comply with that order, the court has the power of contempt um, to potentially incarcerate them for failing to comply with that order. We get those kind of cases as well. Um, and then basically all the uh, the juvenile cases. Juveniles can be charged with felonies and misdemeanors. They can also be charged with things like status offenses. Status offenses are only things that children can be in trouble for, for like not going to school or um, running away from home, those sorts of offenses. So in the Covington office, we're going to handle cases that, that are the least serious being something like um, a truancy case or a child that's not going to school on a status offense, all the way up to the most serious, which would be a, a capital murder case or, or a case in which a person could potentially receive the death penalty and then basically everything in between. Um, our office has right now 10 attorneys, and I have been lobbying hard to get an 11th attorney. We just, have, for, just for workload? Correct. Um, we have two positions uh, that, that they call alternative sentencing workers, but essentially they're social workers within our office that help support the attorneys. Uh, we have one investigator, and then we have three uh, support staff. Um, and so that's, that's the, the basic um, personnel that I have, and we're probably responsible for 5,000-plus cases a year. Wow. Leanne, what do you, as a social worker, what is your main yeah, function? Yeah, so my role is whenever these guys feel like they need, the attorneys need additional support in what I would call bond advocacy, say they attempted early on in the case to get somebody out, and for whatever reason that argument failed, um, maybe the housing situation wasn't stable enough, maybe the judge is more inclined to release them to like substance use disorder treatment and not just straight to the street. Um, I went to school to kind of know how to do that. Not that you have to do that to, to do this, but, um, you know, these guys have law degrees. So I help support them in creating that social aspect of it and gathering that information, connecting their people to resources out in the community, um, that will hopefully better their life in kind of three ways. First, we get them out on bond that automatically betters their life because they're no longer, you know, um, locked up. Second, I hope that then they do well in that treatment so that the attorneys have a little bit of an easier time negotiating for their client with the prosecutor. Um, and then third, hopefully that means because they've gotten whatever needs they had addressed that they never come back. Um, those are my, like, 
personal professional goals um, for my role and what I hope I get to do every day for my people. What is, this is for both of you, but the passion behind this for you personally, I mean, what drives you to, to what drove you to get into it and what drives you every day? I was interested in criminal law, headed into law school. I uh, went to Thomas More College. I was a criminal justice major and I was looking at various um, positions within the, the criminal justice system for a career. And after I had graduated from Thomas More, I'd spent some time in Hillcrest Training School in Cincinnati working with children there. And that, that place basically serves as a, um, I mean, it's children who have gone through the, the juvenile justice system that are placed there for a period of time because of some offense that they've committed. But it's more like a camp. They have a school on ground. They have cottages. And working with the children there really kind of opened my eyes to looking into some of their backgrounds and understanding, you know, where they had, they had come from and where they had, where had had put them in, in society. And, and just kind of understanding that there are a lot of factors that go into why people offend and, and where those things go and people need help. And also kind of sitting through various internships, you can kind of see the criminal justice system can be a machine that will just chew people up. And so for me personally, I like going in and helping people. Um, usually we are appointed to people that are in very desperate circumstances that are in need of a lot of help, not just legal help, which is where um, someone like Leanne comes in to help tremendously because a lot of times if you can sure up many of the issues that they have going on in their life, whether it be substance abuse or, or mental health treatment or even just something as simple as housing and employment, then you can improve a lot of the other circumstances that will lead to better legal outcomes. But, um, you know, once people get into that system, it's complicated, it's hard, and they need someone to advocate and help them if they have any kind of chance. And um, I've been happy to make a career so far out of doing that sort of thing. I kind of accidentally fell into it. I didn't even mean to become a social worker. Um, I went to NKU to um, finish up my bachelor's degree and was um, not forced, but the advisor said, no, you're doing this. I can tell that you'll already be great at it. And she declared my major. I was. She declared it. Yes. Well, I mean, <laughs> it definitely is who I identify as. I mm -hmm. totally identify as a social worker. And um, I thank her still to this day for kind of pointing me in this direction. Um, and then an internship I really thought I wanted didn't happen. And so I was. Um, forced to find another one. And I found the Covington office and I had no idea um, that I would care so much. I expected to do a year uh, of this internship and then move on. Um, but I don't think that there is a single human that could go into a jail and then turn around, you know? Um, so it just, it just lit this passion in me that I didn't really know I had. Um, and I, I thank the opportunity for that internship for me to Finding that, you know, if it wasn't for that, then I wouldn't be here today um, and have no idea that I had this burning passion right. to burn it from the inside down. Yeah. Yeah, inside out. Cool. Uh, so this show is mainly mental health and substance use. So we'll kind of hang in that area. Would you say that that's the majority of things that that you see? Every single person that is incarcerated in the United States is living with either a mental illness um, or a substance use disorder, one of the two. Um, and for some reason, the criminal justice system has decided to take the burden to, quote unquote, deal with those people. Um, and our police force polices those people at a higher clip um, than people, you know, like me that walk down the street who don't get stopped by police. Um, it it. I think accidentally became this way because of how we police. And now our jails are full and prisons are full of people um, with severe and persistent mental illness and quote unquote, less severe things like substance use disorders. Um, Which is the last place they need to be. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And w what's the number 80 plus percent of people that are incarcerated in this country have some sort of underlying drug offense or is that, I'd believe it. Yeah. I'd believe it if it was higher, too. Yeah, I mean, I'll say the, I mean, I guess setting aside misdemeanors and things like that, because I'm, 
at this point handling mostly serious felony cases. You know, when I look at our, our felony caseload, it's hard to find a felony case that doesn't touch and concern drugs in some way, shape, or form. I mean, it may not be particularly a drug case, um, but, you know, the issues that come with addiction are probably fueling a lot of the things that go into that. Um, and then there's untold number of just flat-out possession cases where people are just being charged because they're in possession and not always necessarily in possession of like a, a a baggie of an actual substance. They have a you know piece of paraphernalia like a pipe, and that pipe has a residue in it. Uh, in Kentucky, or at least in Kenton County, that will often be charged as a felony offense because there is some case law that doesn't uh, distinguish that any quantity of the substance is sufficient for getting past a, a directed verdict on on possession of a controlled substance. And so then you get into these legal arguments about whether they knew about that microscopic amount of drugs or not. Um, and so, you know, an offense like that where it's, it's, a, it's a pipe that's used to smoke uh, methamphetamine or cocaine, uh, it could be a misdemeanor and it could be a felony, and there's a lot of discretion that goes into how that gets charged. And then depending on how that's charged, there's a lot of discretion in how that gets resolved, either through the plea process or through trial. And if you're in a trial, then there's there's discretion being utilized by jurors to decide what that is and what it is, and, and the consequences can be severe. Um, and so that's why you get you know a decent amount of, of people end up pleading and not going to trial in those kind of cases because of that risk. And meanwhile, each individual has got a stew in jail. Why? All that gets hashed out. You know, occasionally that, and I will say, you know, in Kenton County, we've taken a lot of efforts to change that. And there has been some, some progress on that front that it's slower, but it has, it has come to be. I mean, there was a time early on in the heroin epidemic, I'd say back um, probably five years now, anyways, when, you know, in, in Kenton County, anyways, if someone was arrested on a possession charge, uh, one of the least serious felonies you can be charged with it carries a penalty range of one to three years. The judges would pretty much routinely set the bond at $2,500 cash and leave that uh, for the period where the person is pending before the grand jury, which is approximately a two-month period in, in under Kentucky criminal procedure. So if you had $2,500, you could bond out, you could go to treatment, those sort of things. Our client base does not have $2,500. And so, yeah, they would sit in jail for about two months. And sorry, real quick. So a cash bond is no 10%, right? That's all the money. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's $2,500 cash plus probably a little bit of money for fees and things like that. Um, so, yeah, it's it would be prohibited for most of our clients to come up with that kind of money. Or even if they could pull five or 10 family members together, it's still difficult to to get that kind of money together. When it's 10 percent it doesn't happen. Yeah. You yeah, know, okay. 250 might as well be a million. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, but for the last probably several years, they've instituted a program in which at the arraignment, the judges are ordering um, people with those kind of offenses to be assessed for drug treatment to see what level of care that they need. Those assessments are being done within a week or so before their their next court date. And then the judges are taking into consideration that substance abuse evaluation. And then for the most part, releasing people that are recommended to residential or in the community treatment, whether it be intensive outpatient treatment or residential treatment. And the, the resources have started to catch up over the last couple of years. I mean, there was a time where it would take three, six months maybe to get someone into a residential treatment program. And now those those resources are more abundant, uh, so those those sort of things are getting better. But you still run into kind of issues with, you know, if a person's criminal history is bad enough, you know, if the if the clinicians think that the person should be in outpatient treatment, they may not get released outpatient treatment if their criminal history is such that the judges is, is unwilling to reduce the bond, or if they have other cases pending such that the judge is un, unwilling to release them on bond. So you know, I've I, I talk about it a lot, but it is, you know, when you're talking about addiction, you're talking about a medical issue. And if you're trying to deal with that into the, in the criminal justice system with due process and all those things, and with judges and prosecutors making decisions about um, how to treat a person because of their criminal history, then things will get messy. You know, you're not always going to be able to accomplish 
the same goals that you would accomplish if it was treated solely as a medical issue. Go all the way to the the court date with your with your clients and and help lobby for treatment as opposed to I mean so it's handled like a normal every day. Okay. I mean the to give you an idea of the kind of the felony process when a person is ar- arrested and charged with a felony offense by a police officer they're going to have a an arraignment on the next morning if it's a if it's a business day Monday through Friday. At that court date the judge is going to give them a preliminary hearing within 10 days uh, usually. And that hearing is for the judge to take testimony from the officer to decide if there's sufficient evidence to actually charge them with a felony offense. If there is, they send it to the grand jury. The grand jury is a group of 12 citizens from the community serving jury duty, and they listen to similar testimony on another date. There's no defense attorney. There's no judge, just the grand jury. And they decide if there's sufficient evidence. And it's the standard is probable cause. You need nine of the 12 grand jurors to decide there's probable cause. And so that whole process right there, that's just the beginning part of a felony. And that, every single felony. Every single that. felony. And that can take three months. Now, we do have some ways of reducing that a little bit. So, for instance, you can proceed by what's called a felony information. If you do that, you skip the grand jury entirely, and you're essentially agreeing there's sufficient evidence to charge me with a felony offense. Because people have the right. I mean, the grand jury, in theory, is supposed to act as a check on the government's power. So they can't just charge you with whatever they want. They have presented evidence to the community, and the community has decided, or at least those representatives of the community have decided there's sufficient evidence for a felony offense um, to at least be charged. And then once it gets past the grand jury, then you have an arraignment, you plead not guilty, you get discovery, you do investigation, you potentially have a trial. But I mean, a felony case, in, in at least in Kenton County anyways, would, is going to take six months minimum. And that's going as fast as you can go. That's a guilty plea as soon as you can plead guilty, more or less. Um, and so if you wanted to have something like a trial... I would I would stretch that number out to an easy eight months, maybe even nine or ten or even a year, depending on. And if it's a very and that's a that's the least serious case. If it's a more serious case, it's going to take a lot longer. I don't know if you want to give your opinion or allowed to give your opinion, but w- what would you say the percentage is ish of residue cases, minor stuff versus more serious? I mean, do you think that we're nitpicking a lot and in, in, um, in a good portion of the felony cases are possession cases and a good portion of those are residue of a pipe found in someone's pocket um or you know otherwise a very tiny amount of of drugs or narcotics so i mean i mean i'd right now i'd say in canton county there's probably anywhere from around i'd say around 1900 indictments a year and I don't to say half of those are possession cases. I'd say that'd be fair. Maybe even a little bit more. Where does Kentucky stack up as far as the climate and how conservative we are in touchy versus you know Arizona or, or, or I'm making states up, but states that are any sort of residue or something, they just write them a ticket. I mean, I, I can't claim to be an expert on like all states, but I'll, I'll say that. You know, it does seem that Kentucky is a lot more. I don't know if conservative is the right way, right where they're they're more punitive for sure. Our our penalty ranges are higher across the board, and we still have a law in the books called the persistent felony offender law, and uh, it's it's recent in the last few years where that law does not apply. Well, maybe since 2011, since that law does not apply to possession cases, but that's the only felony offense that the persistent felony offender law does not apply to. And what that law does is a way of enhancing the penalty range. So Kentucky's basic penalty ranges, they have four classes of felony, A, B, C, and D. A is the most severe, minimum sentence of 20 years, maximum of 50 years, anything in between, or a life sentence. So you can't get 51, but you could get life. Um, A B felony is 10 to 20 years. A C is 5 to 10 and a D felony is one to five. Now, there's a few exceptions like possession. They've created kind of its own special category where they cap that offense at three years. It's still considered a D felony, but it has a one to three penalty range. 
But so take, for instance, uh, receiving stolen property over 500 in Kentucky is a felony offense. Um, so if somebody steals a phone and then they sell it to me and I'm in possession of this phone that's stolen, I don't know it's stolen. I come into police contact. They recognize the phone is being stolen. They're going to charge me with receiving stolen property over $500, assuming it's something like an iPhone. Um, if I have two prior felonies and it's been within five years of me serving out that last sentence, I'm going to face 10 to 20 years for that charge. And that kind of leverage allows the prosecution to make me an offer on that stolen cell phone that's going to be much higher than if my penalty range was one to five um, without that persistent felony offender. I mean, I may even have defenses. So, so for instance, in that circumstance that I just talked about, uh, the prosecution must prove that I knew that phone to be stolen. And maybe they can do that and maybe they can't. And we can argue about all that. But when a client's making a decision about whether or not to go to trial or to plead guilty, if the prosecutor offers them five years to serve on that case and their potential penalty at trial is 10 to 20, they're more likely to take that five. Whereas if the persistent felony offender law didn't exist, well, they would never take five. That was the maximum, right? We'll we'll go to trial always on that. We'd probably go to trial on four and three and maybe even 30 months. So things like the persistent felony offender law or or PFO law for short definitely put a, a lot more leverage in the hands of the prosecutors, and then that can be kind of used to really come down on people. And, you know, a lot of those kind of charges are going to stem from substance abuse. So while they don't or can't PFO a possession charge, they can PFO a lot of charges that are going to come with it. I mean, for instance, tampering with physical evidence. Um, if you have your crack pipe on you and you try to pull it out of your pocket and step on it real fast, we just took potentially misdemeanor possession of paraphernalia or felony possession of cocaine or meth or whatever residue they say is inside of it up to a, a one to five class D felony of tampering for trying to destroy it that can be enhanced by the PFO. Um, and so you can take some of those relatively not serious offenses and they can go up very serious very quickly. I mean, sometimes people will try to eat marijuana. I mean, marijuana possession in Kentucky is a misdemeanor. But if you eat it, that's potentially tampering with evidence, then that can be PFO'd and you can be facing 10 to 20 years for consuming weed, which you should have just done find it in your pocket. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of cases like that. And, and I think if, you know, if you explain those kind of cases to, to people, uh, I don't think most of the community would think it's a good idea to give someone 10 years in prison or 15 years in prison because they tried to eat a dime bag of weed so they didn't get caught with it. Um, but, you know, in your kind of day-to-day struggle, like you're going to get a prosecutor who's going to look at that person's record and say, no, they deserve to go to prison for, you name it, three years, four years, five years, something like that. So, I mean, you get a lot of situations like that where you have to fight against that system. And so, you know, depending on what the circumstances are, I mean, maybe we have legal defenses, maybe we can litigate it through suppression motions or things like that, or maybe they have other problems with proving their case. But sometimes you are just kind of dead to rights and you're up against it and you have some laws that are disadvantageous. And so then we have to rely on on things like our social workers to like, hey, find me treatment for this person, help this person get stabilized housing and employment so that I can at least go to the prosecutor and try to get them to come off and, and, and ease up. And oftentimes what we do in Kenton County, we don't even agree necessarily on probation. We do what we, we call free to argue. So the prosecutor will say like, well, I'll make the, I'll make it three years free to argue. And that means that, you know, on a one to five felony, the prosecutor's coming in uh, and asking the judge at sentencing to sentence our client to three years to serve in prison. And we're free to argue for an alternative sentence such as probation. Um, or even a reduced sentence. And so, you know, a lot of those free to argues, that's where we're utilizing our social workers to try to get together a plan that will make the judge more comfortable with placing that person back into the community on supervision as opposed to incarcerating them further. So right now, judges, prosecutors, cops, what would you say, I know I'm asking for percentages and stuff here, but the climate of... Cops that believe that this is a mental health issue, prosecutors that are um, 
have I don't know, a heart for this and judges, where would you say people stack up? Is there still, you know, this is the stigma thing. I mean, is there still a, an iron fist being thrown down on, on this or are people starting to get it a little bit? I think as long as it's able to be charged as a crime, it will always be treated that way. Um, it kind of depends, I feel like, on our client, the most on how judges, prosecutors, police respond to them, right? If they're what might be called a frequent flyer and the police in Covington can see this person and know them from prior arrests um, or prior interactions, they're probably more likely to get stopped and, you know, checked up on. If the person's criminal history is really bad or they have the ability to throw the book at them a little more intensely with the PFO, those people definitely get get treated more intensely um, and are more difficult to get out or to get an, uh, an alternative sentence, for sure. I do feel like Kenton County has started to look at treatment. Um, I think we could always do better um, until it's 100% treated by a doctor and it's not. it doesn't touch the criminal justice system. There's always the potential for someone to just get labeled and put into America's junk drawer. That's a good way to put it. I, mean, I think progress is slow. Mm-hmm. It's... It's something that you have to keep at over and over and over. There are many days where it feels like nothing but failure. But, you know, when you take a step back and look at it over time, you can see slow progress. And if you ever, if you were to kind of step into just one moment here or there in a docket, you might think that you have made no progress and that things are um, going in the wrong direction constantly. But Again, if you step back and you look at it over time, you can you can see a softening. I mean, there was a day in my career in 2010 where the persistent felony offender law did apply to possession cases. And I did have clients who were pleading to five years to serve sometimes for possession of a small amount of crack. And, and I can remember back that was before the kind of heroin really hit and hit hard. And, and you know, people thought, very poorly of it of a drug like cocaine or crack and now it's almost quaint it's like oh it's just cocaine who cares and so it's you have one of those just that kind of situation that and and even even now like not that anybody thinks heroin's not bad or dangerous because it it certainly is but currently it seems like methamphetamine is kind of the bigger problem um or at least it's popping up in cases more and more and more and so those kind of things change and, and evolve and um it's just a constant battle to, to push um, treatment, better treatment. There was a time where medically assisted drug treatment was not looked upon favorably by the criminal justice system because that's just another way to use kind of thing. Um, but the more when you get uh, medical professionals coming in and saying this makes sense and this is kind of the best way to deal with it, you start to change people's views and, and mindsets. And, and, you know, when it comes to policing and, and things like that, I mean, there are it's hard to paint with a broad brush because there are plenty of different police agencies that we deal with in Canton County. There's not just one. There are agencies that are more zealous in their policing activities than others. And there are individual officers that are more zealous. And there's an amazing amount of discretion that is given to officers. And I also, you know, try to put myself in the position of some of those officers because I don't always agree with the things that they do or the charges that they bring. But at the same time, I have clients that are sometimes difficult to deal with. And then I try to think like, well, what if it was two in the morning and this person was highly intoxicated and mad at me for X number of reasons? And so, you know, if you try to put yourself in that position, there's, um, they definitely have a very difficult job and it takes a very special person, I think, to do it really well. Because I think it's easy to, to kind of fall down in that position and maybe do things that aren't so great. But that said, you know, regardless of how police officers are charging things and bringing things, you know, there's a prosecutor's office that can change that, that can alter that. And you have different prosecutors. You have some prosecutors that that think the only way to fix anything is to put them in prison. And if they went to prison last time for five years, then they need more. They need six or seven or eight. That'll fix it. And if they had six or seven or eight, then we need to do double digits. I don't agree with that mindset. I don't see any evidence that that sort of thing works. I know that it does cost a lot of money. It starts to suck up resources. And so, you know, when you when you see all those kind of things, there are times where you can say, like, I'm not sure that we're making any progress. But, I mean, like I said, just in the 10 years or so that I've been at the public defender's office in Covington, 
I've seen a lot of progress move in the way of treatment, especially for possession cases and, and lower level D felonies. But there's plenty of work to do and you have to keep at it to maintain that progress. I don't know what a, a felony automatically means as far as trial. Do you have a lot of jury trials? In our office, uh, we, we're probably one of the more busy trial offices in um, Kentucky as far as like actually going to trial. So we kind of routinely probably 20 or more jury trials a year, um, which, you know, when you think about the number of cases that we have, I mean, I guess it's a small percentage of those cases, but, you know, at the same time, some of these, you know, and not possession cases probably aren't going to trial a whole lot, but I mean, it does take a lot of effort and a lot of energy to, um, to try a felony case. I mean, the ethical guidelines uh, for a, an attorney with just a felony caseload is no more than 150 felonies a year. Um, I mean, that's kind of a joke. I've had 200 open felonies at any given time in the last, basically for the whole summer. Part of that's because we've been down staff. Um, but I mean, if I have, if I'm only supposed to have 150 felonies for the year, that's like 50 open felonies at any one time. And if I'm four times that, then, you know, I'm three to four times what I should have for the year. Uh, and then when you throw on top of that very serious trials or people's life are on the line, uh, well, you end up working a lot of early mornings, late nights, weekends, holidays, that sort of thing, trying to get prepared. Um, you know, there's a lot of stress that goes into that. And um, it's a, it is a very challenging job. But, I, you know, for me anyways, I think I like that sort of thing. I like being busy with it. I like the hard work and I do like the satisfaction of helping people and, and fighting for them. And occasionally you have those circumstances where you do a really good job, you get a really great result, that client's life is changed, is put on a different trajectory, and just something as simple as thank you um, goes a long way. Back to the stigma of, I want to talk about the jury, of the jury trials you have, the general public that comes in to be on a jury, where do you think they are as a whole on punitive or they, you know, you know, incarceration versus rehabilitation? Well, I, you know, it's hard to say that like the necessary, the jury pool is, is an exact replica of the community. Uh, you know, so the people that are eligible to serve on juries that I get to talk to through, you know, the voir dire process it does seem, you know, it's not super scientific method for collecting data. Whoever uh, happens to, to raise their hand and talk to me while I'm having or conducting voir dire, but it does seem to be, at least from my viewpoint, people a little more conservative in Kent County. Um, but it also appears that, you know, a lot of times, especially with a drug case, we'll ask people if they know anyone or if they personally suffer from addiction or they know anyone that suffers from addiction. And most of the room is going to raise their hand, or at least the ones that are that are um, answering questions. And because everybody knows somebody who's going through it. And then you do get viewpoints that that differ pretty significantly. You have people that are very empathetic to that scenario and, and you also have people that have been burned by it who are just not putting up with it whatsoever. Um, and that's part of the process of Wadir is you're trying to figure out what people's viewpoints are. And anybody who has significant bias one way or the other are usually taken off of the jury. What's Wadir? Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. what, what is that? Just so people it's can... It's a French word that means something like speak the truth or something okay. like that. But. <laughs> okay. Is there is there legislation that you know of back to progress? Is there legislation that's in the works that's going to help us? Well, I, th I think you know as far as the Department of Public Advocacy, the we're always pushing for criminal justice reform, and to my knowledge, there's always discussions about criminal justice form uh, reform rather uh, in the either. Um, decriminalization of things or, you know, the reducing of penalty ranges or the increasing of threshold to get to a felony. So for instance, the felony uh, theft thresholds $500. Well, I mean, like I said, an iPhone costs you $500. So, I mean, there are some relatively, uh, I mean, it's depending on your perspective, you could probably raise the, the, the threshold for felony um, theft 
And I think there's been discussions of raising it to 2,000 or even 2,500, which would create, you know, more misdemeanors and that kind of carrying those, those sort of things. There's talk about uh, either getting rid of the persistent felony offender law or reducing the number of charges that it can apply to. Um, there's talk even of decriminalization of possession cases, of reducing those to misdemeanors. But I haven't actually ever seen any kind of serious litigation or um, not litigation, but legislation rather on some of those topics. I mean, the the expungement issues have 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 gotten better in recent years. That is like wiping clean a felony record or a conviction. Um, it, there's still many ways to improve that. But yeah, I mean, I think criminal justice reform is is certainly pushed by the Department of Public Advocacy and quite frankly, it's it's necessary to better fund things like the courts and the prosecutor's office and the public defender's offices. Um, because we are, I mean, if you look at the way we spend money incarcerating people, that number does nothing but go up. And it it's worth people asking themselves if that's the best way to handle that, or if that's the best way to use that resource or the, that money. As I was researching, one thing that I, f- I found that I thought was pretty cool uh, is the Good Samaritan immunity provision. Is that still in effect? Yeah. Uh, Good Sam, uh, Good Samaritan law, or I guess as it's coined, is still law in the books. Uh, to be honest with you, there was a lot of pushback when that law first came out in the sense that we were having to f- to file motions and try to get that those cases dismissed through litigation because they weren't automatically being dismissed or automatically not charged. Uh, I think to some extent those cases are still being charged, but um, at least in my experience, I've been able to to show prosecutors that, hey, this person meets the elements of uh, that protection and their case should be dismissed. And, and essentially what the, the Good Sam law is, is it's supposed to be a law that makes it so that if you are calling uh, emergency services for someone who's suffering from an overdose, that that person can get medical treatment and be immune from prosecution on that felony charge of possession. Because I, I mean, I, I know of circumstances through talking with clients, and there's been many of unfortunate circumstances in which someone is overdosing or in a medical emergency, and we, they do not call the police because they don't want to be arrested themselves. They don't want that person to be arrested and go to jail because they'll be, you know, because when that person comes to and is mad at their mother for calling the police because they're now in jail or something like that. So it kind of takes that whole thing, supposedly is supposed to take that whole thing off the table so that you call and you're protected at least from just, you know, a possession charge. Um, Now, I'd say the way it works, at least in Kenton County, to my knowledge, is they're still being charged. They're still being um, arrested or potentially cited to court. And then um, we're litigating those and we do get those dismissed um, if they meet all the elements. Think about how many fatalities. I mean, I imagine it's a big number that could be avoided if somebody calls by their friends ODing and they're not going to get charged. There's got, it's got to be a number. Yeah. I mean, I think our utilization of the good Sam law could be better in the sense that we don't even charge. I mean, that would be the best case scenario because it's, while it's great that if they get charged that the case gets dismissed, it still sets that incentive to maybe not call, to not even go through the rigmarole of being arrested and having to get uh, litigate your case to a point of dismissal. So, I mean, yes, from the from the standpoint of how could we better as a as a society utilize that law, um, not even charging people in those circumstances would be the best case scenario. That's the point of the law. That's the absolute point of the law, and it it increases your workload, it increases resources, so. Yeah, I think that, you know. I mean, that's when I, and that's what's, you know, that's, it really touches on that very difficult place to the way I see it anyways, in the sense that when you try to mix this medical issue with the criminal justice system, you get just this, this weird thing that doesn't fit, you know, because if what you're going to call that, I mean, there, when you, when you call it a crime, right, then you, then you say stigmatized, like you're saying not that you're saying that person is a bad person. And some people have the attitude that they deserve that. They deserve that overdose. So they deserve that sort of death if it comes to them. Um, Those attitudes are not helpful. Um, They're scary. They can lead to really bad results. And yes, I mean, to the extent that we want to 
do better with that situation. We need to incentivize people to call to get medical help and then and then refer them to treatment, refer them to education, refer them on on how to make those circumstances better. Because even if you, you know, you survive that overdose dose events, there are, there are a lot of battles yet to come. So it seems like people that have a felony are unemployable almost. Very hard for them to get work. Why is that? Now, I understand violent crime and crimes against the elderly and children. I get that. But why is it so off-putting to employers? And part of that question is pretty obvious, but you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's it's very hard for that demographic to get a job. For sure. I do feel like there are a lot of good agencies out there doing amazing work. Um, there's this big wave for what they're calling second chance hiring, but um, it's definitely a huge hurdle for people to overcome. Um you know, there's a big movement called Ban the Box that's still going on. We have yet to 100% be successful in that, where we're asking for employers to remove that question, have you ever been convicted of a felony or any other crime, from their application so that they don't automatically go in the trash, um, yeah. to, so that they at least have a conversation with people. I think that the, you know, I can't blame them for thinking that way because deep down, even though we pretend our Department of Corrections is rehabilitative, we know it's not. And we know someone charged with a felony probably has not received the help that they need um, or needed. And then reentering society, taking that quote unquote burden on of lifting someone up out of that difficult circumstance. Employers aren't taught how to do so like I said, I do think that there are good things coming and a lot of agencies here in Cincinnati doing awesome work. Uh, Dan Meyer, one of my dear friends, Katie Shad at the Beacon I'm trying of Hope. To, I'm trying to get Dan Nehemiah. Oh, he here. I'm he'll trying be. to get him because I met with him a couple of times. Yeah. Super guy. Yeah. And it's that he removes their agency and with Katie Shad, his social worker, removing the threat from the employer because they take the quote unquote burden on of hiring that person and just just advocate for them wholeheartedly. Another thing is that a person with a prior felony conviction often is part of the downtrodden who aren't as educated. They're poor. They have a lack of resources that make them sometimes not all the most reliable for a company to take on, right? Getting around town, driving, they come with limitations to what they can do sometimes. Sometimes their license is suspended because of their felony conviction, depending on what it is. And that makes, how do I trust that you'll get here? Not just that you won't steal from me or whatever, you know, stigmatizing thoughts they're having about the person, but how realistically are you going to manage everything you have to manage? All the drug tests you might have to take if you're on some form of supervision. Is your PO going to want to come here and bother me and talk to me? Am I going to have to write all these letters confirming that you're employed by me and do extra work simply because, you know, you have been convicted of this crime? It's tough. Yeah. And you hear about these uh, other countries that you know, not only do they decriminalize, but, you know, the, the demographic that you're working with never has a chance you know, in some of these countries, you hear that they're they're asking people, "What do you want to do with your life?" And they're taking steps to. You know, if somebody wants to be a mechanic, they'll help them get not only get the job, but they'll work with the employer and the country and the state to pay some of those wages in the first year. And uh, you know, because a lot of the people that these companies might interview, these people would surprise them. That, you know, you, you don't have to, oh, sure. uh, I always say you don't have to grow up in the gutter. And a lot of these people, just because they've struggled all their life does not mean that they're not bright and they don't have potential. So Yeah, we have to move away from punishment, you know, as being one of the deciding factors in, in, in the way that we resolve some of these criminal offenses. The majority of people that are going into our prison system are coming back out and and it may be, it could be months, it could be a few years, but they're coming back out. And, you know, to the extent that we want a better society, we need those people to come back in and be productive. And Tax paying, I mean. It would yeah. make sense to spend resources on that as opposed to them turning right back around and coming right back in um, on another possession case or other 
petty felony. I mean, I think, you know, part of that is we have too many felonies. We have too many felonies that are too easy to commit. I mean, something as simple as, so when our clients are released on bond and they've been ordered to come back for the next court date and they don't make that court date, one, the judge is going to issue a warrant for their arrest. When that happens, a lot of times they're afraid to just turn themselves back in. And even if it was like just a minor mix-up about like missing their court date, they'll often get charged with a felony offense called bail jumping. So when they're out on bond and they're ordered to come back to court and they don't come back to their next court date. I mean, this to me is a very silly felony. Not that it isn't, you know, there aren't cases where a person is actually not coming back to court to avoid their trial, to avoid justice. If that's the circumstance, that might be a proper utilization of that law. But I have plenty of clients that it's just kind of irresponsibility that got mixed up with other things, uh, forgot about a court date, whatever the case may be. Well, that just adds it's another felony on their record. Now they're two-time convicted felon. It's consecutive time, meaning this is time that's getting added to the last case that they had. Uh, and it just kind of exacerbates everything. And that's just one example. We have plenty of felonies that just have no business being a felony. Um, something like theft of identity. There's like five different ways to commit theft of identity. One of those ways is giving a name and, and date of birth or social security number that aren't yours to avoid detection. So, I mean, often people just have like a minor pay or stay warrant out for them, meaning they have like $150 in court costs. They didn't pay their court costs. They didn't come to their court date to say they needed more time. So the judge issued a warrant for their arrest and they got to serve like three days in jail to, to basically pay off that fine. So that warrant's out for them and they come into contact with law enforcement and they know that warrant's out for them. So they gave their brother's name and date of birth. And it takes the officer all about 10 minutes to run it through their system and find a driver's license photo or their previous jail arrest photo and recognize that that's not the person. And then they charge them with a felony offense. Something like that could be a misdemeanor, probably should be a misdemeanor, but it's often treated as a felony. And so if something is as silly as that, now we've stigmatized that person as something other. And now what? It's difficult for them to get a job. It's difficult for them to be productive. I mean, that's just costing us money. And the only thing that I can I can figure out as to why we think that's a good idea is it's this idea that this person needs to be punished. He did this terrible thing, and when now we're going to punish you. But that punishment goes terrible. on and on and on, well past that sentence ever being and to me, that just, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if, if what that person did uh, is wrong, then, you know, let's give them a sentence and then let's get them back up on their feet and move on. Because it's really not that serious to put a police officer out for 10 minutes or whatever it takes them to figure it out. And my experience often is that people know when they're being stigmatized and considered different, right? And treated perhaps unfairly. Um, so someone who knows they have court but have had but has had a recurrence of their substance use disorder. They have started using again um, some sort of illicit substance. And of course, while they're out on bond, that's a condition that they not um, use drugs anymore. Um, because of how our system is built, if they come to court and say, judge, um, my drug test is going to be positive, they know they're going to jail. Um, not always. Uh, sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is maybe out of fear, right? Because heroin is scary, and we've definitely been living in that world for a long time now, um, even though meth is is on the incline. Um, maybe we were incarcerating people because we didn't want them to die, and we were physically saving their life um, for at least a little while. Um, but that person who misses court and now is charged with another felony they know that. They're advised of that by their counsel. Um, why else wouldn't they? Why would they Why would they not put their hands up and just say, you know what, just here we go, um, and lose all hope that they have clawed their way to, to begin with. Um, and they stigmatize themselves, right? They have, they judge themselves. They are shameful of themselves for having had a recurrence of their substance use disorder. They don't want to, right? But it's a medical condition where they're not getting appropriate care within the criminal justice system because it wasn't built to do it. We weren't trained to do this. You know, um, deputies at the jail do get quite a bit of training, but they don't know how to deal with someone in withdrawal all the time. They don't have the time. 
um, or the sometimes the empathy um, to deal with that. And these people are already going to have to go through the blame, shame, and guilt throughout their early recovery. Absolutely. So why hold, you know, and we're kind of repeating ourselves, but holding them back and, you know, a lot of it's just idiocy in my opinion, but people think that the cost of rehabilitation and getting somebody back into society in this country is going to be, it's just so daunting. Mm -hmm. The number has got to be just astronomical how much it costs to lock somebody up and, you know, punish them and that our mindset as a, as a country. So it's, it's very frustrating. I'm, I can't imagine how frustrating it is for you, but we need more people like you. I hope you get your, your uh, staff, your numbers up so you can do effectively <laughs> sure. what you, what you need to do. And, and all we can have is hope that this country will eventually come around, even though it's slow. So, I mean, I will say in my experience in the last 10 years of practicing law, I mean, I will say that Punishment does not work. I, I do not find myself running into many clients who are making a calculation in the sense that like, you know, if I do this, I could go away for this number of years and nobody's making the, and I'm persistent felony offender eligible. So this is like really like 10 to 20. I mean, those calculations are never being made. And especially a person who's suffering from addiction. I mean, they're just surviving day to day hour to hour, whatever the case may be. And so the idea that if we just stack on more punishment, that that's going to cause them to like flip that thing around. It's, I mean, it's like digging your way out of a hole. doesn't make any sense. We should put the shovel down. Right. And the iPhone that you talk about could be all they need to stay out of withdrawal. You know, they see that on the street and at 500 bucks, you know, like you said, I'm not thinking, 100%. I'm not thinking about the 100%. consequences. Absolutely. No, I mean, Absolutely. those people, they, those, what are those kiosks where you can trade the thing in right then and there and get cash, but it's taking your pictures, getting a photo ID. Like, I mean, it's, it's essentially a machine set up to prosecute you if you're not doing the right thing. Uh, people do that the whole time. That's why people don't want to turn themselves in, you know, um, because they'll be sick in the jail and then treated po poorly for being sick. Well, I want to thank you guys for being here. I know you guys are obviously very busy, and I really appreciate you taking the time because this is important stuff. And I feel like the public, general public, knowing some of these things, it's all for the greater good to to you know spread awareness and education on, on how things really go down and how things should go down. So thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.